also known as Brother Yoon. He was a Chinese uh, house church leader, and because he didn't join the, the national church, he was persecuted uh, for his, uh, his, his networking among Christians. So he writes the, uh, this book called The Heavenly Man that talks about his persecution, his arrest, his, his imprisonment, and, and his torture. The book is really a fascinating book because it's full of miracles of deliverance and, and miracles that, that God did in building the, the church there in China. So while he's in prison, he was actually very successful in leading many of the other prisoners and some of the guards to also become born-again Christian. Well, that gained favor with some of them, but it also increased the hatred that others had for him. And so they were continuing to torture him for his faith and uh, uh, make his life miserable. In the end, he, he's, he's very badly beaten and severely malnourished. He talks about how at one point he literally hears the Holy Spirit telling him to just simply get up and walk out the main gate, which is heavily guarded. And so he does. He gets up and he walks out of this prison called Hangzhou, which uh, supposedly nobody else had ever escaped from, and he, and he just walks through the gate and, and no one stops him. He is now part of a movement called the Back to Jerusalem movement. And the idea is that as the gospel spread, starting in Jerusalem, it spread sort of westward through the Roman Empire, through Europe, through um, then the Americas, and then in where he picks it up in China. And so his passion is to pr see the gospel preached in those nations that go from China back to Jerusalem, some of the most unchristian nations in the world. And so he's, he's there in Germany now uh, in exile. The point I wanted to make, however, through that is so often those who are the very least in the eyes of the world are those who are greatest in the eyes of God. And that's what this passage before us today is all about. Here we have this story, this contrast, if you will, of some of the most prominent, powerful figures in the Roman world. We have governors, kings, Roman kiliarchs, uh, notable businessmen, retired uh, generals from the military all gather together with this great pomp and circumstance, all their colors, all their regalia, all the formality uh, as they gather together, the pomp and circumstance on one side, and yet these great men of the world are facing off with this one insignificant, lowly, nearsighted, unimposing, poorly dressed, traveling Jew, the Apostle Paul. So we have the great men of the world in juxtaposition to the heavenly man. And so how did we get here? Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, back to Acts chapter 25, and we'll pick our story up in verse 13. This is the account of the Apostle Paul before Herod Agrippa II. And this story actually begins here in Acts 25, 13. It goes all the way through the next chapter, Acts 26. It's a very large section of the book. It's so large that it's very tempting to want to break it up into smaller sections. However, it's clearly one story. Last week we had a very small pericope that's a teaching uh, piece. Uh, we had a short sermon because it was a short story. Here we have a very long story, so buckle up. It's going to be a really long sermon. But I'm thinking you'll sit through it because there's food at the end. So we're looking at uh, the third of three formal hearings that Paul has where he gives his defense before the secular 
authorities that all subsequent to his arrest in Jerusalem. Paul's case here is he, he, has, uh, um, uh, he has appeared before several Roman procurators. We could just say they're governors of the area. First there was um, Felix and then now Festus. Both of these procurators knew that Paul was innocent of the charges and they knew that this was all something trumped up by the Jews because the Jews hated him and wanted to get rid of him. But they both had a problem because as governors of Judea, their main interest was to maintain peace. And they realized they needed these Jewish authorities on their side if they're gonna maintain peace. There's a lot of trouble brewing in Judea at this time and it would ultimately spill out into their defiance against Rome. And so these Roman governors, Felix and now Festus are trying to uh, work with the Jewish authorities because they need their cooperation to keep things from, from getting out of hand. And Paul realizes um, that he's not going to get a fair hearing from either one of these guys, and so Paul has made an appeal to Caesar. That means he wants his case moved forward to the ultimate Supreme Court, and that is the emperor himself. And once that appeal is made, there's really nothing that can be done to stop it because he's a Roman citizen. He's made this appeal. But the, Festus has a problem now, as did Felix, and that is he really has no charge to, to recommend Paul for. So he has to send him off to Rome. He has to give him to the next court up, but he's got no charge to send with him from which he can say, this is why we are sending this prisoner to you. So he wants to be able to detail the charges as he sends him on, but that's the problem because he realizes this whole thing is about some theological nuances between the Jews and Paul. And this really has nothing to do with civil authority. It just has nothing to do with Paul violating Roman law. But he needs to be able to, to put together some sort of a charge or report that he can send with Paul. Fortunately for him, uh, into the scene walks the person of Herod Agrippa, um, the, the king, the Jewish king of the area. And that brings us to our text today, Acts 25, ver verse 13. Um, we're going to cover a lot of territory, so make sure you have your tablets or your Bibles before you. <clears throat> Acts 25, 13. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the, high, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid out against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day I took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I had supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserts to be alive. Being at a loss on how to investigate these questions, I asked him whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So we're talking about Herod Agrippa II. So he's the grandson of Herod the Great. Remember, Herod the Great is the ruler during Jesus' time. 
He's the rascal that murdered the, the infants in Bethlehem. Herod the Great had a son called Herod Agrippa the I. Herod Agrippa I was the guy who arrested Peter and James and had James executed. This Herod Agrippa I died in 44 um, AD. I have my own music too. My <laughs> and that must have been a really good point. So when Herod, Herod Agrippa I dies in uh, 44, his son, Herod Agrippa II, the rascal we're talking about today, was only 17 years old. And Rome decided they didn't want to give him his father's kingdom to rule at 17. So for the next six years, they placed it under another Roman procurator, a governor. So this area that he, that he was in charge of was north of Israel. It's Lebanon and northern Galilee. It was called the, the kingdom of Chalcis or Chalcis. So it's under the care of this Roman procurator until Herod Agrippa II, the guy we're talking about, turns 23. So Claudius appoints him to be king, but not over the entire uh, geographical region of his father, a smaller region. And then later, Claudius, the emperor, adds more territory to him. And then Nero, who's the, the emperor now during this time, adds even more authority to Herod Agrippa. So Herod Agrippa II, the guy that we're talking about, comes to power at about 50 AD, and pretty much he lives to the end of the century. Bernice, the lady here that we're talking about, is Herod Agrippa II, full sister. She had been married to her uncle, and when he died, she came to live with her full brother, Herod Agrippa II, in an incestuous relationship. But it was an in-and-out relationship. Sometimes she was with him, and sometimes she was off somewhere else. So it was her relationship with Agrippa II was briefly interrupted when she married another man for a short time. She left him and came back to um, Agrippa II. Both Bernice and Agrippa II, being Jews, they urged the Jews not to uh, participate in this revolt that was brewing against Rome, which, like I said, came to a head in 66. They urged the Jews not to revolt against Rome. Their pleas fell on deaf ears. The Jews revolted. The Romans came in reprisal and just pretty much decimated the land. And, of course, you're, you're well familiar with the fact that Jerusalem was sacked by Titus in 70 AD. So Titus, who sacks Jerusalem, will ascend to become Caesar. But at this point, Bernice decides, hey, he's a, he would be a good guy to have a relationship with. So she leaves Herod Agrippa II and becomes the mistress of Titus, the, the general who sacks Jerusalem and later ascends to be the emperor. Titus, however, decides he doesn't really want her because He's a Roman, and Jews aren't regarded very well among the Roman society, so he pretty much um, dismisses her. She ends up back with Agrippa II again. So verse 14, Festus is explaining the situation. Um, he presents this explanation about th this, where he's at right now, that Paul has appealed to the, the emperor, and he's planning to send him there, but he doesn't really have any charges. And so what we have is kind of an internal summary. That's why you didn't get a running start today the, about Festus' situation and uh, his judgment against Paul. And he says all the Jews, well, technically that wasn't correct, right? Because not all the Jews want him executed. Not all the Jews want Paul dead. 
And we've talked about the fact that by now there are thousands of Christians in Jerusalem. And we also know that when Paul appeared before the Sanhedrin, the uh, Pharisees defended Paul and determined he had done nothing wrong deserving death. So it's an exaggeration to say that all of the Jews want this sentence of condemnation. And so he tells them, verse 18, they brought no charge that uh, he means that uh, that would involve Roman judge, Roman uh, ju uh, law. And that was the same conclusion that Claudius Lysias had come to, and again, Felix and now Festus, that there was no charge against civil law. Notice uh, we're in 20, uh, I don't know where we are anymore, but notice that in this charge that uh, Festus is relating to Agrippa, there's no mention here of the big issue to the Jews. They don't mention the temple at all. Remember, that was the thing that the Jews were so lit about was that Paul had desecrated the temple. Now, somehow this has been dropped. Apparently, um, he realizes that that's really the minor issue. There's something much more in dispute here. This is just the, a surface dispute for a very basic difference. So Festus um, does not report that. But what he says is the whole thing boils down to this issue about a man who was dead, this Jesus, who is dead and now Paul claims to have come back to, to life. Now for the Romans, this wasn't really that much of an issue because they didn't believe in resurrection. They would believe that there would be a future judgment, perhaps, but that would be something that was, that was way in the, in the future. And perhaps if you're talking about resurrection in a, in a, in a, as a metaphor, they, they would be okay with that. But that wasn't terribly important to them. Um, Paul is being charged basically by the Jews for believing in the resurrection. And that's not a matter of Roman civil authority, so he doesn't know what to do. But he, he's a little bit confused about this because obviously Paul is intelligent, he, he's educated. For Paul to claim that this man was dead, is now alive, really baffles Festus. But yet this is precisely the issue which now separates Judaism from Christianity. It's the cornerstone of the gospel, that there was a man who was dead and God raised him back to life. And that's the whole foundation on which our faith is placed. Now, verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. That right there is the whole cruxus of the sermon today. So if you be awake for that and then you can go back to sleep. They came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I have found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write about my Lord, to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So this is really fascinating to me. Here are these very important people who have come together with great pomp and circumstance, great pageantry, and all these people of power and authority, all these people that 
that command respect from other people. Here you have Agrippa, who is a king, and Bernice, his, his sister, basically the queen, and you have Festus, who's the, the Roman governor. You have the high-ranking of officers who are present. Now, we're talking about, in Caesarea, there were five kiliarchs. A kiliarch is like a, is a commander of 5,000. So you have these, these uh, five super high-ranking Roman officials, at least five, because there was always five on duty in Jerusalem. And with these um, kiliarchs, we're also told that there was the leading men of the city, perhaps, some of these men were retired military personnel. Probably most of them are wealthy merchants. All of these men would, would be important men, important people, with all their power and, and all their pageantry. And there would have been flags that had been stationed there, and these guys would have come in with their bright colors. As the king, they would, Agrippa would have been wearing purple. The Roman soldiers would have been wearing their crimson red, indicating the colors of, of Rome. These merchants would have been dressed with their fancy outfits, their bright colors, all of the pomp and circumstance. And on the other side, we have this man who has probably ha not had much warning that he's um, scheduled to appear, this little Jew from Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, who was probably nearsighted and really couldn't focus on who he was talking to, and he looks up in the faces of these these great important persons. And here's this lopsided contest, these great people with their big positions, their power, the pomp and pageantry. And on the other side, this poor prisoner, Paul. Those are a lot of Ps, by the way. The people with power, position, and pomp and pageantry that are facing Paul, the poor, pathetic prisoner. You have the men of the world and this heavenly man. Now, you don't have to know Hebrew or Greek to understand the Bible, but there's some instances where it's at least interesting or amusing, and this is one of those, too. The Greek word that's used here for pomp is fantasia, from which we get our words fantasy or fantastic. It means something that is light and fleeting. It's passing, something of momentary interest only. And so here we have, in this context, we have these men who appear from the world's position to be um, seemingly important, powerful, and permanent. And Luke is reminding us this is a fantasy. This is a passing fantasy. I wonder if we understand that, that these men of the world and all of their importance are just passing fantasies. You know, we see the things of the world, they seem to be lasting or stable. What, what would seem more lasting and stable at this moment than the Roman government? Uh, from their point of view, there would be no end to, the, to the, the lasting government of Rome. What could be more weighty than the Roman Empire and these persons of dignity who represented the empire? Yet Luke is suggesting, you know, this is all a fantasy. This is all a, a wisp that, that blows away. Of course, the reality is all the pageantry of this moment doesn't last the day. At the end of the day, the servants will come in, disrobe these colorful figures, take down the flags. This pageantry wouldn't last the day. And these men would also pass away. They would all die. 
And this empire, the Roman Empire, would pass away, would be sacked by the barbarians. But on the other hand, the gospel represented by this poor traveling itinerant Jew prevails. And it would prevail not only for that day and for that decade and for the decades to follow and the centuries after that and the millennia after that. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ is with us today even with, with great power while the Roman government and the dignity and majesty of Rome is only just a memory. So Festus took the floor and he stood up only long enough to explain the purpose of the gathering and he, his representation is a little bit askew. He makes his point, but like I said, he's, he's missed, he's not quite accurate because he, he implies all the Jews want Paul killed and I've already said not all the Jews wanted Paul killed. And he's not quite accurate, or at least forthright, with the way he handled the situation. Uh, he says that he determined to release Paul, and that was his intention, except that Paul had appealed to the emperor. Well, that's not quite true either, because he had determined to, to judge Paul before the Jews. Paul appeals to the emperor only because he didn't think he could get a fair trial in any other way. And then he says that he decided after Paul made this appeal, that he would let Paul go to, see, to, to the emperor, to, to Caesar. And of course, the reality is that once a Roman citizen has made his appeal to Rome, made his appeal to Caesar, there's nothing any lesser government official could do to, to stop him. At any rate, verse 26, or verse 1, chapter 26, verse 1. And so Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews. O king, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority of the commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the, on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me 
and to those things which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And notice first, Paul's not uh, schmoozing the king here, but he does congratulate himself that he has the opportunity to state his case before someone of Agrippa's eminence, somebody who's familiar being a Jew with the teachings and the promises of, of Scripture. He's, he's pleased to have um, someone who's uh, an expert in Jewish religious beliefs, and he asks for patience to explain his case. Um, the, Agrippa would at least appreciate the strength of Paul's argument and, and the message that he's giving, uh, that it was, Paul's basic argument was just that, that the Christian faith was actually the, the consummation of Israel's ancestral faith. So Paul goes on and he describes his upbringing, his contemporaries would know all about that. Um, and then he goes on to say that uh, it, it should go without saying that a faithful Pharisee would believe in the resurrection of the dead, and a faithful Pharisee would see no fulfillment of God's promises to Israel apart from the hope in the resurrection. But the amazing thing to Paul is that this dispute, this prosecution and persecution that he is being uh, chased around with is at the hands of the Jews, and he's only teaching what the Jewish religion hoped for. It is the proclamation of the very hope of all the Jewish people. And he finds that so ironic that he's believing and teaching the hope of Israel, and yet he's being persecuted and prosecuted by the Jews of all people. And that hope was that God would keep his promise to his people, the promise that he made to the fathers long ago, a hope that's, that all of the Israelites, he mentions the 12 tribes, all of the Israelites, generation after generation, morning and evening, in each sacrifice, they're looking forward to this deliverer that God had promised to give them who would be like the, the deliverer they had who rescued them when they were captive in, in Egypt as slaves and, and raise up for them someone from the horn of David, uh, from the, excuse me, from the house of David, who would fulfill all of these promises that God made to his people. Why do they think it's so incredible then that God would fulfill the promise that he made, specifically the hope of raising from the dead? And the Pharisees would answer that they did not think that incredible. They ardently believed that God would raise people from the dead. But Paul's point is that God had validated his promise and validated his deliverer by raising one man from the dead. And this one man is Israel's long expected deliverer, the one in which the ancient hope was realized. Before Agrippa, as just as he had before the Sanhedrin and before Felix, Paul insists this whole case rests on one thing. All of these charges really boil down to one issue, and that is that the, the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And now Paul is saying that hope that the whole nation has has been realized in this one man, uh, Jesus Christ. 
And once again, Paul is saying that Christian faith is not only continuous with Judaism, it is in fact the true fulfillment, the spiritual destiny of Judaism. And the proof, of course, is that Jesus was raised from the dead, an event that clarified for all time that God had kept his promises, that God had fulfilled what he said he would do through the law and the prophets. Verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should, one, repent, and two, turn to God, and three, perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me at the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. What did they say would come to pass? That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. What should our response be to the, the proclamation of the gospel? Well, Paul gives this no, Paul makes this very evident here, leaves it with no doubt. He makes it very explicit as he explains to King Agrippa and to Festus and these others. He says that Gentiles, and by the way, all men, should one, repent, two, turn to God, and three, prove their repentance by their deeds. That's uh, verse 20. To repent means to turn around. I'm not talking about the Greek word to repent, metanoia. I'm talking about the Hebrew word to repent, which means to turn around, to go about face, to stop going the way you were going and go in a different direction. That's exactly what happens to Paul when he's on his way to Damascus. He's there to persecute Christianity. He turns around. He goes the opposite direction. And not only, secondly, do you turn from sin, we're also turning to God. So Christianity is not a, a negative uh, religion. It's not just about don't sin or abandon your current lifestyle. Christianity is positive. It means finding righteousness and, and new life in Jesus Christ. So our life should be different. It should be better. Not just that we have stopped sinning, but that we have turned to God. And then, lest there be any confusion about cheap grace or easy beliefism or a mere verbal profession, Paul tells us that Gentiles need to prove their repentance by their deeds. How do you know if you're a Christian? It's got to be something more than just mouthing the right words or signing the confession card. How do you know that you're genuinely born again? And because you can be fooled into saying just about anything. I was watching on YouTube last night. They did this experiment <clears throat> with some students, and they had them type something that was written before them, and they said, whatever you do, don't touch the alt key. And they didn't do it, but they had the adjudicator and the, the guy that was on the screen say, you touched the alt key after we told you not to. And in each case, they'd say, no, I, I didn't touch it. Well, they kept badgering them both with these witnesses and from the guy that was on the screen saying, well, yes, you did. And in the end, had the students sign a confession apologizing for touching the alt key. You know what? You can be hey, lawyer, you ought to know this. You can, make a, you can make somebody confess to anything if you put the screws to their thumbs, right? So, the, so how do you know just that you are saved? It's got to be something more than just saying the words. 
The proof is that your life changes when you begin to follow Jesus. It, you begin to do good works that you would not have done before. See, that's the proof. We start to obey Jesus because he is our Lord and Savior. So that's really what the gospel is about, and it becomes the most radical thing that, that anyone could proclaim. And so here's Paul speaking first about his own religious experience, and he says that uh, this is what happened to me. And, of course, these Gentiles, these great men of the world would say, well, that's just what you think. That's just what you believe. You know, that's just your fantasy. And so they think of it nothing more than Paul's religious position, his, his, uh, his philosophy. And what difference does it make what your philosophy is from my philosophy? But Paul says, look, we're talking about a risen Lord. We're talking about somebody who was dead, whom God has raised to life. And this risen Lord now commands all men everywhere to turn from sin and turn to God and then to do works of righteousness. And that is a very radical message. And that is the essence of the gospel. And it can't be ignored. And Paul draws his conclusion by saying, all of this is nothing more than what Moses and the prophets said would happen. This is what Moses and the prophets predicted. Verse 23, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim, both, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. This is the gospel, somewhat hidden in the Old Testament, but very obvious to the Hebrews as they would read this, that, there, that, that, that these things would happen and identify the Christ. First, that he must suffer. So you look to Psalm 22. You look to Isaiah 52.10, that the Messiah must suffer. You have the rejection of the Messiah pictured in example of uh, Moses and Joseph, um, that the Messiah would be the first to rise from the dead, Isaiah 53.10, Psalm 16.10, uh, that he would proclaim a light, that he would say this to clarify truth, both the Jews and the Gentiles, Isaiah 42.6, 6, 49.6, 61-3. All of that gospel is in the Old Testament. Nothing more than what God had promised would happen. And it's all summed up for us in John 3.16. That God so loved the world that he sent his only son. He, God loved mankind. It's his nature and desire to forgive, and so he sends to us a Savior. And that's great news. And that should have been great news to the Jews. In fact, we're told in uh, uh, Acts 6, verse 7, that even some of the priests believed they, when, they, when they heard. Even some of the priests believed because they knew it was in the Old Testament. They knew what to look for and to expect. Verse 24, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. So Festus has been listening all this time, and he has gone as far as he can. He interrupts Paul's testimony by saying, Paul, you're crazy. I've never heard anything as, as wild and fanatical as that. There, there's nothing more insane than what you are saying about this dead man now being alive. 
Again, he might have been willing to think of resurrection as some future reality, especially if he meant it metaphorically. Honestly, though, most people are willing to say they, they at least provide the option that we must stand someday and give a defense for all the bad things we've done. I think everybody would at least say that, right? That there's, there, there, there could be at least a day of reckoning. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking metaphorically about some future resurrection. He's talking about a literal bodily resurrection that has already taken place. It's happened. It's happened in history. And it makes all the difference in Paul's life and in the life of everyone who has met Jesus. It was this resurrection, this, this incredible reality, which has changed the people who've encountered it. But that, to Festus, was completely incredible and intolerant and intolerable. And Festus says, you're out of your mind. And Paul says, I'm not out of my mind. This is both true and rational. The words of God in Scripture are both true and rational. Now, you look around us. One obvious, empirically verifiable, I think that's right, empirically verifiable truth is the fact that men are sinners and we have a problem with our guilt. Ask anyone else in any other religion, what do you do about your guilt? What do you do about your sin? You know, call it selfishness or whatever else you like. You realize that there are a lot of evil things in the world. And even you goody-two-shoes kind of people must admit that you are not exempt from the temptations and the actions that are harmful to other people or at, le or at very least grossly inconsiderate of them. Can we at least establish that much? Let alone that this behavior, while it's harmful or inconsiderate of other people, is intolerable to God, who is deeply offended by your behavior. Now, God has revealed himself and his holy nature and his works, but completely apart from that, apart from God's revealed word, the scripture, creation is so beautiful and complex it leads us to the conclusion there must be a God and he is beautiful and holy. That would be the conclusion you would come just from observing nature around you. And it creates a problem for us that you would be aware of completely apart from Scripture. That if there is a God who is beautiful and good and holy, why would he want you in his presence? How could he allow you, a sinner, to be in his holy presence. Is that not the conundrum of mankind? We need someone to take the justice that we deserve to transform our hearts and our minds. And now we're back to that is the message of the Bible. That is the essence of the gospel. And that is quite true and quite rational. Verse 26. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. 
King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also those who hear me this day might become such as I am. Well, except for the chains. He says in verse 26, this has not been done in a corner. There's nothing secretive about what's going on here. These events, how the ancient promises have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, are well known and public. This is no esoteric mystery whose initiates are pledged to secrecy. The, the ministry, the death of Jesus are matters of, of common knowledge. And his resurrection has been amply attested to. In fact, we're, we're talking about we're, we're about the year 57, so we're, it's only anybody who's 30 years or older could have seen Jesus, could have testified. There would still be people alive now who could testify that they had seen the risen Jesus Christ. This gospel, this message of the resurrection of Jesus has been, has been openly proclaimed. It's not whispered. It's not secretive. And anyone who believed in the prophets and compared their prediction against the historical facts of Jesus of Nazareth must acknowledge the truth of Christianity. Now, Agrippa, Paul expects, believes the prophets, and he could corroborate Paul's testimony and tell Festus that whatever else this testimony is, in fact, uh, sane and rational. The logic of the argument is so plain to Paul that he can't imagine anyone who's an expert in the Jewish religion failing to come to the obvious conclusion. But, of course, Agrippa's not in the least disposed to even appear to be on Paul's side, and so he turns with a wry smile to Paul and says, would you expect that in such a short time that you'd make a Christian out of me? This is a derisive term, Christian, in this day. And Paul says, I pray that not only your majesty, but all who are listening to me today would be Christians like myself, apart from the chains, indicating the shackles that were around his wrist. Now let me draw your attention back one more time to the irony of this meeting. The pomp and circumstance, the great men of the day, men of influence, men of authority, men of power, men with fine clothes and regal positions, positions of of authority, men who the world takes notice and respects reverently. And then take a look at this pathetic Jew, powerless, disrespected, hated, deemed not worthy to live. But you know, as we look back in time, 2,000 years later, isn't it ironic that these great men, the only thing that makes them even worth remembering today is the fact that their paths crossed with the great apostle Paul. These great men of the world, totally insignificant to us, except that they encountered this heavenly man. Are there heavenly men today? Yeah, there are. Well, where are they? Well, they're in Chinese prisons, for one. Pastor Wang Yi, founder of the Early Rain Covenant Church, was arrested December 2018 the People's Intermediate Court in the southwestern city of uh, Chengdu said Pastor Wee was convicted of illegal business operations. He's been fined and all of his personal assets have seized. 
He was arrested along with dozens of other church leaders as part of an ongoing crackdown that China had against religious groups in the country because, like I said earlier, the government requires that all Protestants worship in the only churches recognized and regulated by the Communist Party, the Three Self-Patriotic Movement. And Wang's um, congregation was shut down. The government destroyed his church. And China continues to crack down on on Christians, there's more arrests, arrests and imprisonment, um, especially for church ministry leaders. <clears throat> Open Doors International estimates there are somewhere around 50,000 believers in North Korea's labor camps who are uh, in these maximum security prisons as political prisoners because they are Christians. Expert ex-prisoners have shared that they were under horrific abuses, including being uh, caged and not able to stand up. In Open Doors World Watch List, there are 50 countries where Christians are arrested and imprisoned for their faith. The highest among these are Iran and China and North Korea. Um, because these Christians are considered political prisoners, their sentences are often much longer and more brutal. So what can one little church in Port Townsend yearning to be spirit-filled and desiring to be useful in the kingdom of God, what can this church do to help these heavenly men and women? Well, we can pray that these prisoners experience the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We can ask God to give them endurance and courage to be bold in their witnesses to the, the other inmates and guards. We can pray that these imprisoned Christians understand that those who... Um, persecute them are really the tools of the enemy. And we can pray that God would continue to use them each day to advance his kingdom and guide their steps to be closer to the heart of Christ. We can, we can pray for peace and comfort for their families that are waiting their appeals and their verdicts. We can pray that ultimately they get released and sent back to their homes. Here's the heavenly man. Paul, before these great powerful leaders and authorities of the world, Here's the heavenly men and women, these Christians in China and Korea and Africa and Iran who are persecuted for their faith, arrested. Here's heavenly men and women, Christians like you, seeking to be great in the kingdom of God by seeking to be the servant of all. Let's pray. I pray, first of all, God, that you help us to look outside of our own four walls to the community that you've placed us in, that we are the missionaries sent to Port Townsend and East Jefferson County. I pray also that we look beyond our county and our country um, to pray for the Christians who are persecuted for their faith. We thank you that even through this, you are being glorified. You are being honored, and the gospel is going forward. We pray for our brothers and sisters who suffer persecution. Give them endurance and courage. Give them the presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray for one another in this room that we could set aside our differences to be heavenly-minded men and women to love you with all of our hearts, 
and to obey you with our deeds. Father, I pray, let your spirit fall upon this church and transform us. Make us new. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing this last song together. I stand amazed in the presence 